0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson.
1: I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel.
0: Let's jump into the news. So we don't have a lot of items, but it is big news. Phoenix 1.7.0 RC0 was released. So the first release candidate of the new Phoenix 1.7 is out. This is the time when people can jump in and start playing with it. Like if you're not brave enough to jump on master branch and and see things as they're coming live on there, then this is the time when you start the reviews and you can pull it down and run all your local tests and create a separate branch to start making some of these updates and changes because there are a lot of big changes. Let's get into some of these ones so first of all we should point out that there is a blog post that was released with this and it's over on the phoenix blog and it's a great resource because it goes through and explains and shows examples of a lot of these different things that we're going to mention so we have a link to that in the show notes too but the first one that was really big that was talked about in chris mccord's keynote at elixirconf it was talked about by Jose Valim and a lot of people have been excited about this. It's the verified routes sigil. It's that sigil P. What are your guys' thoughts on this new feature?
1: I'm excited for the sigil P because I can never remember routes dot. What do I put next? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always get the uh, arguments flipped too
2: because <laughs> it's variable. I'm excited about this because it's also a compile time check. And that's how, that's how this works. So yeah, I am I am looking forward to it. I tried it on the master branch, actually, I think like a week or two ago, but I guess things hadn't caught up. So the sigil P didn't actually exist yet, even though the docs had it. But now it is. Now it's there. So I can hop on to my uh, Phoenix 1.7 branch now and complete it.
0: (laughs) Mike Clark shared a little observation that he had where he said you can generate a verified route with a query string by adding an Elixir map or a keyword list after the question mark. So you got the sigil P and your text of the URL. And then you can interpolate a map or a keyword list, and it'll automatically turn those key value pairs into the params. That's a pretty slick little way of building those two. That seems nice.
2: Yeah. And just a bit of detail there, it actually calls like the URI encode for WW query, you know, function there. So it's going to do it the right way. It's not just going to
1: turn it into a plain, you know, string or something. <laughs> it's not going to like JSON encode it for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another cool feature is it seems to come with a lot of components, or let's just say we're taking more of a component-based approach. From the blog post, it says a phoenix.new project will contain a core components module, which will have a core set of UI components like tables, modals, forms, data lists, and then the suite of Phoenix generators like gen, HTML, live, JSON, auth, will all make use of these core components. So that, looks pretty interesting. I know that we we had that with LiveView for a little bit with the generator for LiveView right? It came with like a few like modal helpers and stuff and so now it looks like it's going to be built into Phoenix instead, and I'm excited to take a look at these components.
2: Yeah. I I really appreciate this approach. I'm I'm thinking back uh, to a a closed PR that I had submitted, I don't know, must must have been over a year ago to add a flag to the generators to like opt into Tailwind classes. And I'm so happy that that wasn't merged because this is so much better. The big push there, and this is just mostly repeating what Chris McCord says in his keynote. So if you want more details on the why behind all this, go listen to the keynote or to the blog post. But, you know, you you often have your own style that you need on your on your page anyway. And so after you have your Phoenix app generated, you're probably going to be making these components anyway. And so now it just starts you with those. And so if you don't like Tailwind, that's fine. Get Tailwind out of there, replace your, your components with the, the bootstrap ones or the, you know, whatever else that you're going to use, and it should generally still be really helpful. If you're a little bit turned off by the Tailwind part of this, you shouldn't be. It's very similar to, like, what it's been doing for a while. It's now much more composable, I think. It's much more replaceable, and it's still going to be useful. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to it. And speaking of all these components, too, there used to be this kind of, like, feeling between controller-based views and these live views and how they had to do things differently for rendering stuff. But now this whole component architecture kind of deal is going to be unified between controllers and live views or dead views, I might say, right? uh, Controllers being dead views. So now you can use your same, you know, component-driven architecture freely (laughs) without having to worry about what weirdness, you know, might be live view only kind of stuff And so there's a lot that's implied there. One bit is that how you access flashes between controllers and live views has now been unified. You used to have like a a root layout and then it would have to kind of branch off and do a dead view app layout and then a live view layout, you know, and and the biggest difference there in all my apps have been how you get that flash message to render. (laughs) So that difference is now gone. So I'm, I'm really happy that they've unified that so the detail there is is that previously controllers would put that flash message in a private space on the con so you wouldn't be able to like just go into your con assigns to get the flash message like you would be able to in your live views so the change is now that controllers will now also put them into the con assigns just like live view does for the socket so accessing that stuff is going to be very similar so you probably don't have to split up your your layouts anymore Speaking of layouts, that also was a big change. So there's more details on all that. We, we won't go into all of it here, but how controllers are rendering stuff is now less about controllers and more about HTML renderers. So the blog post d- details more about that. But these are all great changes. I'm looking forward to it. And even looking to the future, you know, Mark, what what did you see about that, about the the future of of like Phoenix and supporting other kinds of libraries?
0: Yeah, I was a little bit surprised. At the very end of the blog post, it says alternative web server support. And I was like, what? This work was done by Matt Trudell. And it's really the basis for first class web server support in Plug and Phoenix that allows other web servers like Bandit to be swapped in, but still benefit from all the things like WebSockets, channels and LiveView. So very interesting. Bandit is a project I'm not actually that familiar with. So that was a new mention for me. But I love the idea of saying, hey, the web server itself can be replaceable. So that's future work. More interesting stuff to come there, I'm sure. But just very interesting to see that groundwork is being laid for it there.
1: I didn't notice that. That's nice. It looks like it now includes hero icons hex package for those nice icons by the Telwind folks. So... I don't know about you guys, but I've been using that in my projects already, and I think they're pretty nice. Yeah. Every time I I put an icon in there, I literally
2: go to heroicons.com and go copy the SVG, and I just paste it wherever it's used. (laughs) And I'd rather not, I should stop doing that. (laughs) I never created my icons component, you know, file thing to like normalize that stuff. So this this will be a nice addition. So I'm glad that that's there. All of this sounds like a lot of changes and it it is, uh, but I do wanna reiterate that this isn't necessarily a big change that you have to do in your existing projects. These are good features to adopt uh, over some time. And there are probably some key changes that you do wanna make, but the majority of the changes that you're gonna see uh, are probably gonna be on generated projects. If you're curious of what those differences are, you should go check out uh, a project that I'm maintaining that uh, generates the diff, the git diff, between the outputs of of your newly generated Phoenix project. So you can go to uh, utils.zest.dev. And there's a generator uh, differ there. We'll include a a link in the show notes. But this diff is going to be quite large (laughs) because it's now generating all these component, you know, kind of stuff. But you don't have to do that in your existing project. But you can take a lot of inspiration from what they're doing and go find the other changes that they're making because they are making some nice quality of life updates, too, that you might want to take advantage of. So we'll have a, a direct link to the diff, but then you can also generate the specific diff from like maybe when you generated your project a year ago on an old version with particular frat flags of you know, Phoenix and then compare it to what the RC0 here for 1.7 looks like and then go find the differences that you want to incorporate. So instead of just bumping up to Phoenix 1.7, which you can certainly do that, you can also go find those other maybe more stylistic changes and incorporate those as well.
0: Those are the things I really want to do in my projects, because I've worked on, you know, those Rails projects that you have the same project for like five years, and Rails has changed so much in every release, then you come up to some release, and now it's like, this is impossible. Like, How do I, I, I have to like figure out all these fundamental changes that aren't backward compatible. So I just have always tried to keep my Elixir projects up to date in that way. When new changes come out, like, oh, now there's a way to do user auth that's live view based. It's like, oh, I want to take advantage of that and all these things. So the tool that you're providing, David, I've always had to do that myself where I just generate it locally and then diff the directories and very painful. I love that you have this tool and that you've been keeping it up to date and it's up to date for Phoenix 1.7. So awesome. I will be using that.
2: (laughs) Definitely required an update. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I want to uh, reiterate something you just you just said that was also a big change here is uh, 1.7 includes the Phoenix Gen Auth dash dash live changes too. If you've run that in the past and you want to go change those to live views, you can diff that as well. I plan to do that myself, so I need to go figure out what those changes are.
0: So with all of these changes, I thought Jose Valim summed it up pretty nicely in a tweet where he said, Phoenix was already the best web framework for real time. But this release makes it the best for any server-rendered content. Period. Verified routes is a safe and elegant solution that I haven't seen anywhere else, and Components plus Tailwind brings best-in-class productivity. It's like that really echoes the the feeling that we've already had with this, and I I know tons of people have been really excited about this release, and I am certainly one of those, and I can't wait to start this huge project of like I want to get all the new goodies, I want to get everything updated and you know migrate it all it'll be fun but the one key that you that you hit on there David that I want to reiterate is i really appreciate that phoenix doesn't create all these changes as breaking changes that just kill your project and you can't go forward unless you update all of the things all of the deprecations are like hard errors you know it's not the case there's so much work and effort put into it to make so that these changes are deprecations you get warnings you get noticed you get time to make the updates and you can do it according to the needs of your project so very appreciative of that last up
1: not related to phoenix 1.7 we have a new batch of ElixirConf 2022 videos this batch includes kip cole's talk on tempo we met with him recently on the podcast we've got marks going global and we also have david's handling david migration so we'll, we'll drop a link to that youtube channel in the show notes
0: and that's it for the news This episode is brought to you by fly.io. You know, live view has been a game changer for how we build interactive web applications. When you deploy your application physically closer to your users, the experience is even better. That's what fly.io lets you do. Easily deploy your apps around the world like people do with CDNs. What's more, Elixir and fly.io feel like they were made for each other. It's so easy to set up clustered applications across data centers. Fly.io has over 20 regions around the world ready for your app. The secure WireGuard network means you can securely do cross-region PubSub with Phoenix. So many things become possible now that were just so hard before. Check out Fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Thanos Vasilakis. Thanos, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I hope I didn't butcher your name too badly.
3: Why don't you give us the proper pronunciation? No, it's Thanos Vasilakis. Like it. You did it very well.
0: I was looking forward to talking to you about how you and your team are using Elixir at the Royal Bank of Canada, which sounds pretty darn interesting, right? This is about the Canadian capital markets, how you guys are using Elixir there. How is it being used? What kinds of problems are you solving? How has that been accepted? I'd love to learn all of this and, and talk with you further. But before we jump into all of that, why don't you tell us a little bit
3: more about yourself? Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? I'm born in New York, but I was raised in Europe, uh, mostly in Britain. At least I worked in Europe till I was 35. When I returned back to New York in the late 90s, a large part of my uh, working life has been in Europe. And the location kind of defines very much what kind of work you do. Here in New York, most of the work is, if you want to make some money to pay your mortgage and so forth and so on, most of the work will be in in finance. But in Europe, uh, you have a lot more variety uh, of work. And there I worked a lot in telecom. Also, um, that's why I I kind of met Joe Armstrong and so forth. And also uh, in uh, all sorts of other stuff, government work, military, so forth. But uh, So... I'm in New York, I live here and I work for a Canadian bank whose head office for capital markets is in New York, the Royal Bank of Canada, sorry. (laughs) So like, first of all, like for those of us who um,
0: are not uh, familiar with Canadian banking, the Royal Bank of Canada sounds like it might even be a government institution, but is that the case or is this a private bank?
3: Maybe you can give a little explanation there. Private bank's not the right word, but it's a bank. It's not owned by the government. It certainly has strong ties to the government, as its name might suggest, but nothing more than any of the other Canadian banks like TD and uh, there's a whole bunch, Nova Scotia. They call themselves RBC for short, and I work in the capital markets entity, which is a different business tied to Royal Bank of Canada. And basically, it's, it's the part of the bank, most big banks have it, which uh, handles trading or uh, the buying and selling of, let's say, commodities, equities, uh, bonds, that's debt, and dealing with often the money that has been generated from the normal main street bank. This world is really about trading. And the Operational side around trading, which is either preparing the data for the trading, market data collection, of market data, and so forth, on so managing the trading, or uh, post-trade work, which is risk calculation, which is t- the big thing. When I say risk, it's financial risk, and that's the typically most of the IT work is in that or operational. Now, if we, you know, you look at the bank and you look at the budget spent, more money is probably spent on. After the trade is made on operational, that's reporting for the government, regulatory reporting, or clearing, or confirmation, or settlements of the trades, then actually on the trades itself, on the trading part itself. That's usually a low, low spend. And so as a developer, you're typically going to end up in one of the areas around the trading ecosystem, peripheral areas, which is taking up most of the budget. But my group actually builds horizontal services. I'm head of R and D technology, but to kind of earn my keep, I run a group, really great group of programmers who build out horizontal services for use throughout the bank.
2: Wow. (laughs) That's pretty cool. So the next time that we record the podcast episode, and if we ever, ever do that in Canada, we, sh- we should call ourselves the Royal Thinking Elixir Podcast. <laughs>
3: <laughs> because we, we, apparently we just, we just could do that. If you're somebody who believes in royalty. You know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I'm I'm curious. I, I, you know, I know this is a little off the cuff, but you said that you're, you know, heading up the research and technology, right? Parts of, of, of the bank there. I have to assume that you've probably looked into now let's let's talk about it and then and then depart (laughs) because otherwise the whole the whole episode will be about cryptocurrency and I don't want to I don't want it to be. But (laughs) you've probably looked into cryptocurrency and how that is like, I don't know, affecting especially trading, maybe not trading capital kind of things, but the, the transactional part of that, at least. Can you tell me? Is there a real future here with crypto? Is there is there something I should be looking forward to?
3: I think th- th- this is something we cannot deny. It, crypto's this is I think huh? crypto is part of our future. Many of the banks have embraced some sort of initiatives in crypto. Most of them are, are lagging behind because it's it basically cannibalizes their, maybe their existing businesses, or they think it does. It's not necessary. Most big banks are very, very conscious of what they, of reputational risk. So they shy away from anything that could possibly damage their risk, their reputation on their brand. And so they're careful. They're waiting to see where we go. I think the situation reminds me of when I worked at the European Parliament in 1994, and I was trying to sell the idea that the Parliament should have a website. (laughs) I, I was the owner of the website, right? And many people believed it should, but no one wanted to take the risk. And At the same time, you had people like Bill Gates saying that it was a fad. Internet was a fad, right? That, that's quite well-known. It's not a quote, but it's pretty much well-known that he said that. And uh, you had, what's his name, from Boland saying, uh, who needs an internet when you can throw a floppy disk to your friend? So <laughs> we're at the stage where we the huge change, it happened already some time ago. Crypto is old by many standards. But the change happened, but it takes a while for it to, to you know, reach every level of our lives. And I think that's where we are. Interesting enough, my personal first uh, Elixir project, uh, that means, you know, uh, let's say coding and anger in Elixir, mm-hmm. was to build a anonymous exchange like Shapeshift. And Elixir is perfect for that. I mean, I mean, Elixir.
2: Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that that's a great lead-in to how you came to discover Elixir. So, like, just the fact that you were, you know, working with the parliament in 1994, trying to get them to, you know, get a, get a website, <laughs> you've probably seen the evolution of a lot of, a lot of languages and the downfalls of a lot of languages too. So I, I presume, you know, that you've got some experience in C, right. And probably in some Java, maybe some other, other technologies. How, how did you find Elixir? How did you come to it? How did you come to appreciate it?
3: Well, it starts well, long time ago in, um, uh, I think I first met, uh, armstrong in in the 80s in in a ML Miranda meetup and i think it was i think it was 85 85 uh 86 and uh at the time i was implementing uh, another functional language called hope for uh bridge telecom and imperial college it was a project run by uh, mark Tsang of the forward intelligence unit of Br- bridge telecom and it was a joint project with uh, imperial college there was at the time a kind of functional language war going on among, I think, the telecom companies. So I'm not sure where Erlang was in uh, in Ericsson, but definitely BT had hope. I think Cable and Wireless was funding Miranda, and in conjunction with Edinburgh, I think it was Edinburgh University, and I guess uh, and I guess Upsella was involved in Erlang. So they're all working on something. They're all going to the same direction. So that's where I first, you know, got into this world of functional programming. Along the way, you know, I was making a living and in those days. It was mostly C and then it went to C++ and then Java and so forth and so on. And Python was a big change in my life in, in the 94. I was building a casino, online casino and, and, um, in C++ and I switched to Python and it made a big difference. Around about ninety six to seven, I got a job at Ericsson, and that's where I st- I really started learning much more about Erlang. It's not Elixir, but it's Beam, and I actually was working on a competing project, shall we say? It was written, believe it, it was in C plus plus, written uh, using CORBA to basically emulate many things that Erlang can do. You know, that's kind of sad thing. I mean. There was the airline group, and there was the more traditional group, and I was in the more traditional group, but I was casting, you know. I was quite jealous of the other guys working. in. Uh, and we would talk at the canteen, in the Erickson canteen. That's where we mostly had discussions. And it was uh, already my, my appetite was opened up, and I bought Armstrong's first book, I think. I don't know when it came out. And I read carefully the book. It was an amazing book especially one of the last chapters around building a distributed database. But I didn't do any work just yet in Erlang. I, my first Erlang project's, you know, production project was for Credit Suisse in 2008. I think I got kind of revitalized by the second edition of his book. And in 2008, I built a trade, we call it a Trade repo for Commodities, and uh, found the performance good, and... There you are. So I had, I somehow got a window of freedom at Credit Swiss because I was working for a very, I think a very enlightened manager, Gunjin Moda. And at the time he was trying to get Python into on the floor, the trading floor for, as a development language, but getting a tremendous pushback from what was mostly either Java or C plus, a C sharp shop. After Credit Suisse, I went to JP Morgan. And after JP Morgan, I went to uh, Royal Bank of Canada where Gujarimodo was there, and they let me do again the same trick. By that time, actually, I leveraged CouchDB, which is kind of a cool database. And what's most cool about it is very plug-and-play. You can write your own uh, modules. Nowadays in Elixir, those days in Erlang, You can do them like today, to do too, and just plug them in. If you don't like the index system, you can replace it. If you don't like storage, you you can replace it. So I changed the way they're doing indexing on CouchDB, and again, we're using for for commodities a central trade repo, and it worked beautifully. Much more recently, around 2016, I became head of uh, R&D for technology at RBC, and I decided to create a... Beam cell of developers, you know, group of developers, and that's when I I, I hired a, a really good Erlang programmer, Mikhail Komenkov, who's currently now with Samsung. And at that time, we started developing things in Erlang, and we switched to Elixir. And I, I did the switch for two reasons. One was at first I found it very easy language, and I want I wanted to move other developers. Uh, who are existing developers working in python and maybe with ruby experience to beam so i thought this would be the good choice but then as we we use the language more and more we just the right word is delight you know just such an amazing experience so um we switched all our work to elixir around 2017
0: you mentioned how you've been with a lot of these different big financial companies for some time and you mentioned where some of these other companies had really struggled to even bring in something like python where you know maybe net or java were like the enterprisey like that's the answer that is the software you're supposed to be using to create your own solutions and i was just curious like you've come from a history where you've had a lot of exposure to erlang when you were wanting to propose these solutions like you're saying hey we're going to put this trading data or this commodities data in a couchdb database you know you're you're bringing some things that are pretty non-traditional or not the enterprisey kind of answers so they're not the common answers did you get a lot of
3: pushback for trying to bring in something like erlang or elixir or any of these other solutions yes of course uh, and you you don't have to get push i've had pushback in startups too so, big organizations are different from startups, but startups often the pushback can be from the technologists themselves, and they have already have a vested interest in in Haskell. If we're talking about functional, let's say, or or Camel. <laughs> but in big organizations, there's often uh, different dynamics, and you you have to see it's it's kind of works. The top of the top executives are really worried about their brand and uh, reputational risk. And if they are part of front office, I mean, part of where the business is created, they also want fast time to market. And if you can prove to them the technology you're proposing will prove things for in somewhat time to market is a big one, right? Then they're pretty quick to adopt new technology. They're not really a barrier to new technology at all. And they assume that you know what you're doing and they leave you to it middle management is the problem because they have different criteria. They have an eye on their boss's needs, but they have their own needs. And their own needs are operational risk. They don't want anything going down. And okay, you can use the nine nines argument of uh, the beam and many other things to win them over. And they say, this is all very well. It's great. But actually, their biggest issue is their budget. They fought really hard to get their budget each year and the fights often throughout the whole year. And Once they got that budget, they need to spend it. And if they don't spend it, every month they don't spend the money, they lose it. And they're spending it on one thing, developers. And if they can't hire Elixir programmers, that's a huge risk for them. So their problem, and they use this word, their problem is scalability. Can they scale their teams? And if they can't, they're going to have problems. So typically, though, traditional solution is if I can't hire, I outsource. And I outsource to companies, and this is a problem again, in big organizations that are on the proof list. To get on the proof list is very difficult. To get on the proof list takes a long, long time. So they can't just say, okay, I'm going to develop this thing in Elixir and then pull in some Elixir shops. It's not going to happen. That could take two years. So they're forced to choose the technology stack that they can scale the teams, in, and that is where they can hire quickly. And if they can't hire quickly, where they can outsource, and where if they can't outsource, where they can offshore, and that creates a pressure, technological pressure on the middle management to go for mainstream technologies, especially Java, which is uh, and if you're doing UI, uh, it's going to be Angular, React, maybe today, or or, and Spring Boot, but that is it. And if I'm looking at my resumes coming in, I have open uh, place at seven. For for developers, Elixir preferably, every resume coming in is is Springbok Java. It's got nothing to do with what I want. So that is the pressure on management, middle management, to say, uh no, let's do it in Java. At least I can find the people and I can spend my budget that I fought so hard for. That's the key. Now underneath them, they have people who are putting pressure on them. And that's the developers who basically can always t- uh, use any argument to torpedo a new technology you bring in, saying, oh, we can't find people, or there's no knowledge, or there's not enough momentum. or, And they have various reasons why. Typically, it's to do with comfort zone, not leaving their comfort zone. And they're only willing to do that if they can improve their marketability, not find a new job, and get maybe promotion or improve their, their pay. And then the ones who think out of the box might, yeah, they might be supporting Scala or Haskell or Camel or you name it, F sharp. And, uh, that, so those are all the factors that kind of stop you from in, uh, choosing or block you or not stop you, but let's say slow you down and bring in, um, new technology. I once got in a really bad fight when I worked at, at SAIC, the New York Stock Exchange over Linux. We, I had, you know, the other developers screaming at me that I was a communist. So I wanted to bring in an open, you know, open source, to, you know, forget about Python because <laughs> we actually built a trading platform Python, which threw them, but we did it so fast. They didn't have time to block us, but <laughs> moving from commercial operating system to Linux was, was, yeah, I was branded as a communist. So you get all sorts of problems, but the real one in a big organization is this budget and there is a way forward. You know, because all the other factors are are easy win. Hot releases, uh, reliability, uh, elegance of code, easy to maintain. Yeah, sure, but if I can't find the developer. And that's that's the big fight. And I think it has to start with somehow Elixir gaining ground in the offshore and big body shop companies like TCS, uh, Sapien, and uh, various others. And I know Essentia is doing a lot of work in Elixir, but... It needs it needs even more we need to get much more penetration, should we say in in those areas
0: I'd never heard it de- described that way where the middle manager thinks about scalability in terms of hiring teams, like scaling out their workforce so it's like that's that's not the kind of scalability that we as the engineers are usually thinking about. That was an interesting little tidbit there, but I would like to dig a little bit more into how you guys are using Elixir and what kinds of solutions you're using at the Royal Bank of Canada. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about like what are these particular systems doing and then how is Elixir being used?
3: So we'll stick with Elixir because we use a lot of Erlang too. I think our first project for Royal Bank of Canada, Capital Markets, so RBCCM, was a uh, proposal to create a data store for the entire trading ecosystem. So uh, what we wanted was a store that holds everything you need to make a trade and everything you need to price a trade i mean to the price them and possibly hopefully everything you need to calculate the risk uh, that means to work out your exposure on what you're holding, so let's say the bank has you know millions of dollars in certain uh, equity you know stocks and and commodity and so forth and so on working out. How much, What would happen if prices move one way or the other? How much would the bank lose or gain? And how much would the bank be at risk? We decided to build this one store. It w- was not enough to just say, use a database. You need a lot more than that. The store would need to be replicated across all the data centers. So whether you're trading in New York or Canada and Toronto or in London, you should be able to see the same data and it should be local because the important thing was a reasonable low latency. Faster bank low latency is, is you know, probably, depending on who you talk to, could be below two hundred nanoseconds. Oh, no, that we we're not gonna get. But we were talking about in the lowish microseconds, you know, the twenties, thirties, microseconds. So we'd need to offer that. So the data has to be very local contrary to you know like when you're developing for the web you can often scale with machines in our world everything has to be on the single machine the whole ecosystem has to be on one box because you don't want to introduce
0: even going over the network right
3: yeah, yeah. you don't want you want to reduce your network hops typically well that's another story but taking that that kind of makes an application you write on the beam interesting because actually the Performance is dramatically improved. I mean, one of the big problems is when we scale out this is uh, the network going across the network. So that was, that was, that was interesting. We wanted to make sure that the uh, trading system store was 24 hours up. We needed to do hot releases. We wanted the store to be immutable. We needed to use a functional language, but. That's one of the features that we're looking for. And we wanted to be able to go back in time. And so we built the store. And we built it originally around CouchDB. And then Mikhail, who I mentioned before, and uh, Ming was on the project, Ming Huang, a very experienced developer. And we decided to build it around, uh, we switched from Couch. Uh, which gave us very easy replication. At some point, we switched to Postgres because we got faster performance. And then it was only natural for us to start implementing an interface to this uh, data store using Phoenix. And so that's how we started really bringing in Phoenix, which was a new technology for uh, for the bank, and Elixir into the bank. We could create several levels of interfaces. We we used uh, abstinence for GraphQL, I hope I pronounced that right, as an interface to our trading or our data store. And then we have the REST interface. And then we did something unusual. We also needed a very fast connectivity. And we've got something called ICE. We use ICE, which is kind of a modern version of CORBA, but gives you very low latency connectivity. And it's used by several banks,
1: You quickly mentioned hot releases, which I think is is interesting because a lot of people talk about that as being a benefit, but I've never heard of anyone actually using it because (laughs) I don't know why it's maybe it's hard to implement or something. So how has that been? Was it hard to implement? Is it hard to do hot
3: releases or? I said it was a selling point. Or a feature, and then say we implemented it. No, we did. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but you're quite right. We always talk about hot releases. Somehow it's kind of frightening. Don't know why. I think there's just not enough of a body of work around it, enough examples for your your average developer or your developer. No, it's stupid to say average to feel confident enough to start using it. But actually, I did do a demo. I did a demo to my manager, Gunjan Moda, uh, where I, um, basically showed him you know i went up 10 releases and went back 10 releases on a trading feed and i was streaming in trades and i we didn't lose a trade and i you know i was keeping the sequential so i showed him that we could do all these releases without losing without losing a message so here's the thing we're in the bank we just can't afford to lose anything any message And there is a a real penalty, a financial penalty, which maybe other organizations might not have, whether you're Discord or you don't want to, but the financial penalty is not so great. You you know, whether you're WhatsApp and so forth, you can have failure and you can recover it reasonably well. But in the bank, failure is, is real money and it could be your job. So we demoed it. And we did implement it. And many times we do releases to dev and QA machines. If you build a service that's used in an organization, your QA deployment tends to be treated like a production deployment by everybody else because they're developing against it and they need it up 24 hours a day. So we use it for that. Now, in production, uh, in organizations such as RBC and many others, JP Morgan, so it doesn't matter which Big, the production's controlled and, and releases are controlled and used through different tooling and through different teams. And in theory, we could do hot releases, but we, we don't on production. The idea was there. We sold it, but, but in, in QA and dev, we do. And, and developers who are this, and this is just as important because they're testing their code against your service. And if your service is down, they, they might lose hours trying to debug their own code we use hot releases successfully. And uh, it could be done in production. There's nothing to stop you. So that was our first project was this trading ecosystem. And we didn't finish it at that time, but we started winning more more business. And the next one was a position management system. And then the order, order books done in Elixir. And we, we could prove that we could scale. This is the need scaling position management. The market data coming into a bank like typically for equity options is coming in at about 60 million messages a second. So if you're trying to price, so you see you coalesce and so forth and so on, you reduce the number of messages. But if you're trying to price or know your position in real time, that's quite expensive operation. You're doing that hundreds of thousands of times a second, shall we say. So Ming Huang built this a fantastic position management system using Elixir. At first, he Developed it, let's say, using the Gen server. And then, then we started having performance issues around messaging. And we started looking at Partisan, the Partisan project for Beam, which uh, hopefully, you know, but we didn't use it, but we started looking at Partisan project. So we ended up having, trying to optimize the messaging around that a lot. But uh, we're, we're, what, what I'm trying to say is that, We followed this, a, um, classic approach to using gen servers and other, other, should we say behaviors in, uh, in the toolkit for Elixir. And we found that when you need to get the performance up, you've got to do your own stuff. You've got to build your own. But it's a great kickstart to use what you've got out of the box. You can put something together, test it, check the scaling, and it's great. And then, and then, and then when you need to optimize, you've got to roll up your sleeves and start doing your own homework. And that was our experience in the uh, trading sphere. So position management, order management, they were not adopted eventually by the bank. But ironically, I, I heard, I could tell from the recruitment, that TD Bank were building almost the exact same thing uh, system in Elixir at the same time. Interesting. Once many years ago, uh, I was told that you know, if you're thinking of something, usually a thousand people are thinking about it, or maybe a million in the world. And you know, and it goes down and you maybe only a hundred try it out and two or three actually go all the way through. And that's probably what was happening for the same reasons we chose Elixir, somebody else at TD was choosing Elixir. To do exact, you know, even the name of the project was the same. Wow. <laughs> not exactly not exactly the name, the group was the same. So it was the GELP in RBC, it was the GELP uh, group in TD. I'd
0: like to hear a little bit about how you're processing this flow of messages. Are you using any queues? Or are you using anything like Broadway? You said it sound like you you end up with something that's kind of
3: homegrown and purpose-built. Yeah, good point. No, we, okay. It's important, what you know, to some of the toolkits. We ended up using Poolboy for scaling for this project, and we didn't use Broadway at the time, but we use Broadway elsewhere because it's great for handling things like back pressure and so forth. But you need a queue behind Broadway, so no. These this is it. When you're dealing with market data, you tend to flow the market data straight from the NIC to shared memory. Hmm. You need normally to use smart NICs. You can't do it in any other way. And you're basically writing the market price updates straight into shared memory. Then you can use uh, a NIF in the Erlang world to take that data from the shared memory back into your Erlang world. You use a NIF to read the data and propagate it throughout the system, maybe put it also on a channel or something to make it available to people who subscribe to this data but it's before the data hits is stored it's going typically from the NIC straight to the memory bypassing the kernel and that that would be the standard practice in trading
0: i was not aware that you could go straight from a network card to shared memory
3: (laughs) that's interesting yeah you have to because otherwise you've got too much latency the, nowadays, there are quite a lot of programmable NICs and not only that, but NVIDIA's moved into the space. They're also producing them, but before it was Mellon various other people. There's now also a business of, of going from, uh, of what they call smart drive handlers. So also avoiding the kernel moving your data around from, uh, from storage straight into, to RAM. That's, I'm not saying that we're using that, but people, some people are. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's not very easy, but you can code these NICs and then you can put your pattern matching or whatever it is there so that you can look into the message and, you know, you crack open the message, you look into it and store it in the right piece of shared memory. And then on the NIF side, you're kind of indexing into the memory, LSC style, <laughs> in the old days, uh, to pull out the the data. and. Python, more recently, I think from uh, 3.8, has gives you now the facilities from Python to read into um, memory space. But when you're working on a VM, that's a very different type of story and because uh, it kind of violates a VM. But we, we can do it from a NIF. We use a NIF for that.
0: So you'd mentioned Absinthe, one of the elixir tools that's used for GraphQL and that the front ends might be something like Angular or React. And I was just curious when you're talking about this latency and the desire for maybe speed to market, if LiveView has factored in anywhere in like either the research or if you've actually tried deploying something with that and if you've what that's been like.
3: Okay, the road to LiveView is different. So it's an interesting problem. This is not for RBC, but for another project, another company, a startup. When we're building a trading system and we were trying to build a trading system that's, that traders that I'm used to expect, that is, um, you know, a, a system that maybe somebody's using eight monitors on. And they have hundreds of not hundreds of, uh, little charts and depth tables or so little tables showing the depth of the market, that is, the prices and the volume at different prices, what's available at different prices. Typically, a trader can have hundreds of these on the screen. They're all flashing and all that sort of stuff. Uh, when we tried to build this in React, we could get about 10, 10 panels up before, let's say, the Macs that we're programming on catch fire. <laughs> Almost seriously. No, I'm not joking. That's even funnier. <laughs> I have two very develop uh, very good, very experienced uh, React programmers, Leon Shimroni and Fatiali. You know, many, many years full stack developers that can do a program anything in React. They've been doing a lot, not just programming uh trading UIs or but also even frameworks for building trading. Yes. Okay. We couldn't build a proper trading screen that I'm used to building in C++ or something like that. We just couldn't get it in uh, with a web browser. So uh, when LiveView first was announced, I did a, a prototype myself, seeing if I could do this in LiveView, what what kind of benefits there were. LiveView kind of reminded me of things we used to do in the past, X Windows and other things that even, uh, I've forgotten the name, but there was a project run by Gosling before he went on to build the Java language, and it was a, a UI project that he was doing, uh, n- not next step, but something like that, which was similar, where you're sending the deltas up to the render, screen render. and when I worked in mobile, I also built something called PhoneScript that did something very similar, sent deltas up to the screen, and the render will render the deltas. Okay, so I understood where we were going in uh, live view, and I think roughly at the same time, the C-sharp jockeys at our bank were talking about Blazor. So there's two worlds. So we're all going to the same place. It's typical people going the same direction. I tried doing live view, trading screen, prototype and I found it handled the performance. I could uh, put up not 10 of these widgets. I could put 20, 30, 40, 50, 100. No problem. So that sold me on live view. I knew there was a case that we could use it for real trading apps that we couldn't build normally on uh, web. That's where we got into live view. But we didn't do uh, any any trading app at that time in Live View. It takes some time. Uh, about two years later, uh, a year ago, in fact, I got transferred to work in a new bank for RBC Cash Management Bank. And There, I asked one of these very experienced React developers who invested a lot of their life in React to build a Live View front end to the bank, to a Cash Management Bank full front end to the bank and about 2 weeks in i Leron, this is Liron, i asked him hey you know how's your experience and he had complaints but he didn't say about stopping he didn't say anything like that he didn't say rolling back to do what he knew react he had been hooked i could see it 3 weeks later so a week 3 weeks into the project i'm asking so how's how's your experience he said, no i love it for him, it was the context switching. He didn't have to switch, but you could say he could do that now too. For me now, I'm programming. I was programming the back end with him. I had a benefit. I could actually debug the work he was doing. I could go in, find the bugs, fix them, or put in uh, or change things the way I wanted. And I found my journey to coding what affected the screen was much faster than when I had to do the same job going through a React front end. So years ago, I said we did a um, trading screen, uh, system for crypto. So this is some years ago, 2017, crypto marketplace. The front end was React. The back end was Elixir. And those days when I had to fix something that I didn't like in the React side, it was for me, uh, difficult. It was basically, I was finding live view was winning. It was typically three, four times faster for me at achieving my goals as a secondary programmer going into somebody else's code. Mm -hmm. This is a very important fact. For the primary programmer, he wasn't talking about moving back. He liked it. He really liked it. And it was his first Elixir project and his first Phoenix project and his first LiveView project. So we did lots of mistakes, all of us. But he was brought in. I didn't stop there. Uh, About three months into this project, not three months, 2 not even two months maybe, I switched him out. I needed him somewhere else. And I took it over my 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 partner in crime, J.P. Creedon, and, and we basically said, oh, let's try the other programmer, Fatih Ali, brilliant programmer, brilliant developer, but also many years, maybe four or five years in React and a different style of person too, and try him out, and we switched him in. His adoption was even faster. Not in terms of adoption of skill, adoption, I think, in terms of complaints. I got less complaints from Fatih anyway. He basically liked it right away. Now it's many, we've switched, all of us switched uh, organizations within the bank. And then two weeks ago, I was in Toronto, and I was talking with him. And he's even talking about rewriting whole UI development frameworks that he's written in React, you know, drag and drop, uh, a type of product. He developed Fatih, which looks like Tableau, and he did it in uh, backend Python uh, and then React, and I can't remember what the, uh, the CSS templating language he used. Anyway, he's talking about moving the whole thing to Phoenix, LiveView, and Tailwind. He's interested in doing that in the time frame that we have while we're This is squeezing that in with his daily job. This is important because. Developers, when they invest, not developers, when you invest a lot, emotional and time, other time into something, whether it's your child or your development language, you're not likely to change so easily. You, you've got too much investment in it. These are guys who've got four or five years, maybe more, of React and Python investment and JavaScript investment, and they're switching. And that's a big win for me. We're currently building a tokenization platform in Phoenix, LiveView. So a uh, crypto tokenization platform for the bank. Wow. That's uh, what we're doing there. And yes, we'll probably build a, a Tableau-like, lookalike kind of, uh, BI tool for the bank in LiveView. Uh, it's still a small team. It's about seven people, but we achieve a lot because we, we've got these, you know, these tools that we're using, such as, uh, Lixia and its ecosystem. And we mix it with Python you know, for uh, ports whenever we can't do something.
2: So we've covered a lot uh, so far. You've, you've covered like, gosh, from back in the 80s when you met Joe Armstrong. You've, you've talked about the 90s. We've talked about, you know, your, your recent things that you're, you're doing with Elixir and, and like um, musings with LiveView so far. This is all really cool, cool stuff. I'm curious what you're looking forward to in the Elixir ecosystem. Like, what are some things that you're going to play with next? Or are you, you know, currently researching now?
3: As uh, head of R&D for RBC's Capital Markets, I uh, own our own machine learning platform. We actually bought in the core, and it was written in like 1990s version, Erlang. And we are extending it, and we're extending it using Elixir. I think it's a long way before we see... Well, maybe not, but it will take quite a lot of work before we see... The data scientists using NX. I think NX could be though more interesting for uh, the quants. And it's really a matter of us doing example code and, and uh, to maybe lunch and learns inside a bank to get some adoption. But for the start, we're building most of the machine learning, the model, the model management, the model execution in, in Elixir. This, it's uh, Liron uh, Shimroni. He's actually built out a complete Fast, new fast for us in Elixir. That's really great. It's amazing. It's uh, certainly better than the one we have now, which is OpenWest based, which is erlang based, but it's got issues. And, um, so that's one thing we're working on. So improving our machine learning platform. The other was the crypto platform in Elixir. I'm looking personally at rules engines. We need a a good rules engine. And I'm looking at the possibility or well, building one out in Elixir. Currently, uh, we use Drools in the bank, and I would like to replace that uh, monster.
2: I haven't heard of Drools before, but I have heard of Business Rules Decision Tree, you know, kind of kind of a library to help with that kind of stuff would be really, really cool. Really, really nice to have. I've, I've actually had a couple of use cases for it myself and looked for a good solution. I haven't found one. So uh, any, any listeners out there, if you are aware of any like Erlang or Elixir, rules management systems like that would be really cool i'd love to highlight one of those things and uh, if there's not one out there then yeah we should build one and having something like some machine learning some some nx behind it to do the the crunching of that that rules would be really cool make it really nice and speedy
3: most of the rules engines are based on the RETA algorithm R-E-T, and basically there are some pretty good libraries out there, written, one of them, is, I think just called rules and it's written in C, so probably our first step would be to wrap it, and we'll be looking at it, maybe offering it as a uh, doing it as a NIC to begin with, that would be probably our first and then we'll see where we would go to make it more Elixir-like that's what we're thinking of doing at this moment, the other thing is in a bank it's weird, but We have a lot of accounting systems, and they're nearly all written in COBOL. Interesting. Still. Well, they're not written anymore, but they're 40 years old, and no one's switching out. We can't get rid of them. (laughs) I'm jockeying for a project where we rewrite one of the big old accounting systems. I mean, they handle billions of dollars, these accounting systems, and I'm proposing to redo it in Elixir.
0: We have covered a ton here, and I really appreciate taking the time to explain some of the the neat things that you are doing. And I'm curious, if people want to maybe ask some follow-up questions, maybe thought something was interesting, how can they get in touch with you?
3: They can email me, I guess, at thanosv at gmail.com. I think I'm Thanos on the Elixir forum.
0: Well, are you currently hiring? Is that something people could reach out to you if they're interested in learning more about?
3: Yes, we are. We're hiring. We're hiring uh, mostly in in Canada. It can be in uh, Montreal, uh, Halifax, probably best in Toronto. But we're also hiring in uh, the New York area as well. And we're open to ideas. Now, it's um, kind of hybrid work. theory is supposed to be two days a week in the office.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Thanos, for talking with us. I really, really appreciate getting an insight into these financial markets, which are, you know, they're, there's a long story behind them. And it's something that I haven't really heard Elixir playing much of a role in before. And it's super interesting to hear that you guys are doing that. But not only that, but other competing banks are saying, hey, we find value in this and they're doing this, doing likewise. So that's very exciting stuff.
3: The key to the community is if we can get These languages to have uh, more usage in the companies that typically, the vendor companies that typically supply big organizations. So, a bank development budget, maybe a large part, maybe more than half, goes to vendors. Those vendors will go for the most common, the easiest uh, language to hire in, you know, to body shop. But if we can get some of the vendors to start. Being have specialty shops in Elixir that would dramatically improve the chances of the language in these organizations. This happened in Python around the mid 2006 and six seven. A very important project started at JP Morgan called the Athena Project. It was in Python, it was written in Python and it was developed by uh, Mike Norton, and, but most importantly, Kirat Singh. And companies that vended to JP Morgan which has a i don't know billions of dollars of budget maybe trillion dollar budget went into started building out specialty shops in python so they could get some of the budget on this project and one of the companies was sunguard and so they basically created a special, uh, team python teams which they body shopped to all the banks and this was very important in 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 putting python in the banks this is the beginning apart from the big data science world, uh, boost to the language. So I, I I see what David, I think, David, you may be suggesting. Uh, sure, did ask me questions that are around NX. Yes, it could be the future for Elixir if, if it takes off, but got to work on that, you know, and takes a long time. Maybe more medium articles on using NX for financial risk and so forth and so on could improve the uh, penetration of elixir in the financial world but uh, i think the key fundamental thing is getting it in the consultancy firms
0: i loved hearing how you guys were leveraging live that that actually surprised me it's just i wasn't sure that wasn't part of our prep and everything and i was like oh that's really neat how, how that's giving you like the superpower i loved talking with you and i encourage people to reach out to you if we'll have links to your your ways to contact you in the show notes But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.